Proverbs chapter 4, 13 through 16, and chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Jesus, we rely on you to be a shepherd and to be a redeemer. To be our redeemer every week. We, we say that this is a place, this is a community where we want to meet people where they are and not leave them stuck there. But we are the stuck. I'm the stuck. We're the ones who sometimes don't even know where we are. And I feel that too. So our reliance here when we gather, Lord, is never on us or my words or my thoughts. It is that you, by your spirit, are alive and ministering, alive and teaching, alive and correcting, alive and encouraging. And so, uh, as a group of brothers and sisters and friends, we turn our attention to you and we say, would you please come and would you please turn what would otherwise be weak and fruitless um, into fruitful and encouraging uh, because you were here. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Like I said, these were pretty clear words uh, that James used. One of the things that he said that's extra clear is he said what is your life down in the middle of verse 14 and he answers his own question as he's apt to do and he says it's a mist in other words like a vapor like your breath on a cold morning there and really visible one moment and then vanishing and disappears just the next something that races by so quickly that's one of the things that we groan about or lament in our lives This past week, here's comments I've heard from you. I've thought or said some of these myself, but here's comments I've heard from you as what you're actually doing is lamenting and grieving and groaning about the rapidity of time, the quickness with which time is passing by. I heard somebody said, November? Already? How did that happen? I feel that. Uh, I heard someone last night say, there's just one more freshman fellowship until we do like the Christmas party right after Thanksgiving and that's it. Or you might have heard me just say, this is the next to last one of these before we move on to lessons and carols and finals and all of that. Seniors, tomorrow night if you come or don't come, you're probably feeling a little bit surreal already. How are we, how's it time for a seminar on post-grad life, on life after Athens, life when you're not here? 
And you might be excited about what's next, but you also feel a little bit of grief and lament and groaning about how fast your time in Athens went by. When you get to be old like me, you'll say stuff that old dads and moms say like, I went to bed one night and I woke up and my, kid, my oldest kid is eight. How did that happen? Say so you turn your head and they're teenagers or you're dropping them off for college. We groan about that. We lament how quickly time passes. We also lament the temporariness of our lives. The temporariness of our lives. How temporary both our life as a whole is, but also our experiences. So also within the past few days, I've heard this. As people are lamenting or groaning about the temporariness of their lives, I heard a junior say how much she missed freshman fellowship. Man, I missed that year. So rich. A recent grad, um, I was reaching out to some of them to kind of get some insights that they want to pass on to the seniors tomorrow night. One of them said, I really miss my RUF days. One of them said, I miss my church so much. What they're doing is lamenting and groaning and grieving the temporariness of life. Not just how fast it goes by, but how temporary, how short-lived good things are. So the question comes to you. Prior to the past minute or two, do you ever think about the temporariness of your life? The temporariness of your life. I love that some of you actually nod when I ask rhetorical questions. Very helpful. Thank you. I'm seeing some, like, some of this. I didn't think so. I, I often don't either. It's hard to, it's hard. Like we're busy. We've got a ton on our plates. We're so um, just what's next, what's next, what do I got to get to next? We don't have time to think about or reflect on the temporariness of life because we're so worried about what's coming next in life. It's always been hard. Thousands of years ago, Roman generals who would um, make the long journey back to Rome after conquering some foreign army, they would have these victory parades. And one of the practices or traditions that these generals had was to post a servant right behind them on this long victory parade through the city. And that servant's job was to occasionally whisper in the general's ear this phrase, Memento mori, memento mori, which means remember your death or you'll die too. Why? To keep the general, Rome's best and brightest military generals, humble, lest they become foolish and impulsive and arrogant. So that servant would be there just whispering, memento mori, memento mori, you too will die. James isn't so much saying that. He's not so much whispering memento mori to us. And say, that was Ecclesiastes. That was in the spring. That was the teacher, remember? He said, better to go into the house of mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, the house of sadness, than the house of feasting. He said it's good to think about our mortality, but James is saying something else. There's a new book that just came out called How to Inhabit Time by a guy named Jamie Smith, and he offered the phrase memento tempore. Remember you're temporary. Remember you are temporary. Memento tempore. You and I are that. We're limited. We're tiny. We're here one moment. We're gone the next, and some of our most 
amazing experiences in life are here one moment and they're gone the next. So in a couple of weeks from now, Anna and I are going to go out with some people to one of our favorite nights of the year in Athens. It's the uh, Christmas concert, the UGA Symphony Christmas concert. It's at Hodgson Hall. You should get tickets. They're free for y'all, and it's amazing. We go every year. And one thing that I chuckle at every single year is that guy in the way back of the symphony who plays the triangle, or he's like the sleigh bell shaker for that one tiny little part in that one little song of a two-hour concert, and that was his role, all dressed up in a tux, all that prep, and that's the extent of his contribution. Might hit a triangle two or three times or shake some sleigh bells once in a 10-minute song or a two-hour concert. Now, it's an inherently humble part to play. It's inherently humble because it's small, he's tucked in the back. But imagine if after the performance when the crowd raises up and standing ovation, if he thinks the ovation's for him, and he kind of pushes through everybody else, and he's like, this is amazing. I mean, I didn't think like I prepared that much. And he comes out into the spotlight, and he takes the bow, pushing the conductor to the side. Or the crowd starts yelling, encore, encore, and he's thinking, they want more triangle. I'll give them more triangle. They want more triangle? Is more cowbell still a thing? I don't know if it is. It'd be ridiculous if he did that. The triangle player? mistaking his role for a significant role, an all-encompassing role throughout the whole course of that symphony or that concert. If you've ever been to something like that, you know at symphonies, people don't marvel at the triangle guy or the cymbal girl who just like every now and then, boom, they marvel at and they're impressed with the conductor or the symphony as a whole. That's who they whisper about. That's who they talk about. That's who they're impressed by. Not all the background players who have those more limited roles. Here's the thing. Here's the point. In this huge symphony that is history, you are the triangle player. So am I. That's it. You're the triangle player, or the sleigh bell ringer, or the giant drum hitter, or the cymbal hitter. We're the background players. And I even mean this inside of your own story, in your own personal history, you're the triangle player, the sleigh bell shaker. The role that you play in the world, in history, in life, and yes, in your own life and in your own story, the role that you play is limited and it's temporary. I don't read music, but I would imagine that triangle player is looking at a, what's a, probably a binder this thick of sheets of music and they're just flipping through, flipping through, flipping through, flipping through, and all of a sudden there's an indication on the sheet that this is his role and there's maybe three or four notes of music that he plays and then his role's over and the symphony goes on, uninterrupted. His role was there, he played it, and the role moved on. So the history that we get to be part of, um, I know this is cheesy, but it's helpful to remember. I, pretty recently, I just was looking at the word history, and I was like, oh, look, it looks like his story. That's been a helpful little reminder for me. I get it. It's cheesy. It's okay, though. His story. That's what history is. Scripture's account of history is that it was brought into existence by the Father through the Son, 
and that the end of history will be brought about and brought to completion, brought to fullness by the Father through the Son, Jesus. Human history is bookended beginning to end and everything in the middle by Jesus. There's a lot in the Bible all about this. Jesus himself says, I'm the Alpha, I'm the beginning, I'm the Omega, I'm the end. And by implication, I'm everything in between. The way that the Bible portrays Jesus is not another supporting character who burst on the scene in the first century and then leaves the scene in 33 AD, but the beginner of history and the one who will bring history to its goal and its fulfillment. That's why we are just background supporting characters. It's his story, his symphony. And we're a triangle player. Where is this in the passage? Um, I should have mentioned this earlier, that what's beneath that little bar there, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 7, 8, and 9, we're going to come back and, and study that in more depth next week as we kind of bring this series to a conclusion. But I wanted to include it tonight to give a little bit of context and to demonstrate that this is in James's mind. James is just briefly after talking about what he is, about remember that you're a mist. Remember that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. James says, well, one thing we know about tomorrow is Jesus is coming. Verse 7, the Lord is coming. Verse 8, the end of that, he says, the Lord's coming is near. It's at hand. In the end of verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. So that the history that you and I get to live inside of for even a brief moment is his story. It's his history. Now, this isn't to diminish our lives and to say that they are insignificant. Because James didn't say, you're insignificant. He said, you're temporary. Um, think about the little contributions to that triangle player or sleigh bell shaker. They are significant, but they're only significant and they only mean anything or really sound good because of what they're contributing to. Or you could say, they're only significant because what they're embedded in, or what they complement, or what they accent. I'm forgetting at the moment, y'all can remember what song it is that has the sleigh bells, but that, you know what I mean? It accents this much bigger, longer song. It's just an accent. It complements it. That's why it's meaningful. Make sense? Sleigh bells in some other movement or arrangement or Bach or something, you're like, what is that? That doesn't fit. That doesn't make sense. It's noise. So these things matter. Those contributions matter to the extent that they complement and accent what's going on in the longer symphony. As a standalone, they're noise. You take those instruments out of the context of that song or symphony or concert that they're a part of, and now they're noise. How many of you want to live with a roommate who's like, I'm sorry, dude, I got to practice sleigh bells for two hours tonight. I got to practice the, the cymbals for a few hours tonight, get ready for the big concert this weekend. You don't hear those instruments ripped out of context of a bigger story. You don't hear that as music. You hear it as grating on your ears. Get rid of it. It's repellent to you, is what it is. James is saying, you and me, a human being, as a standalone character, ripped out of the context 
of his story is noise. Doesn't make sense. Is meaningless. Loses its significance. And he's saying because it's noise, it becomes repellent to other people and to God himself. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James Connect makes that connection in verse 16. And we're about to get into this this hypothetical he gives us in verse 13, but he says, as it is you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such boasting is evil. Boasting and arrogance and pride have always been repellent. A human life ripped outside of the context of Jesus as king, Jesus as redeemer, Jesus as the beginner of all things and the one who fulfills all things, that life immediately becomes noise. And doesn't make sense. It's not complementing the bigger story anymore. It's in opposition to the bigger story. So you and me as standalone characters don't make sense. You and me as central characters, even in your life. I know this is hard to think about. It's hard for me to think about too because it's my life. It's my birthday. But me as a central character in my life is noisy. Even that doesn't make sense. And this is what James is writing about in verse 13. We'll unpack this for a few minutes. He says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, I'm going to go to this city, we're going to go to that city, we're going to spend a year there, carry on business, make money. He is, let's say, let's clarify what he's not slamming. He's not slamming planning or plans. We know from the rest of scripture, that's, that's thumbs up, that's commended. Plans are a good thing. Counting the cost before you act is a good thing. Gaining counsel and anticipating the future and unintended consequences and all that stuff. Good thing. All good things. That's not what James is slamming. Nor is he slamming ambition on its own or entrepreneurialism, wanting to get out there. He's also not slamming making money. None of those things in and of themselves are bad. So what is he slamming? Arrogant presumptuousness. Presumptuousness. As if uh, you and I were what the symphony was all about. As if we were the central characters in our stories. And let's be honest, we, you and I, I'll, me for sure, I don't just think of myself, I'm not just prone to think of myself as a central character in my story. I'm prone to think of myself as the central character in your story too and everybody's story, right? Can I get a few nods to make me not feel so lonely? Everybody, thank you. <laughs> yes, sir, I'll nod. That, that's how grandiose our thoughts are, right? If we're honest. My aspirations, my ambitions aren't usually just that I'm kind of the, the central casting character in my story, but in everybody else's too. That's why a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about, James said, why do you fight and why do you quarrel? Uh, because we're all leading characters trying to be the leading character in the same movie. And there's just not room in the story for that many lead characters. That's where that, st- so where that conflict comes from. So he's slamming, not planning, not making money, not ambition, not being an entrepreneur. What he's slamming is that self-reliance, that godless ambition, that orphan mentality of, um, I got this. I'm going to get out there, conquer the world, and crush it. Listen, let me, let me itemize all the ways I'm going to go be awesome. That's, what, that's the attitude that's here. 
when you say today or tomorrow, we're going to go to that city. We're going to spend a year there. I'm going to start a new business there. I'm going to make money there. The emphasis that, uh, at the end of that sentence is, is, is make money. There, James is connecting this back to something that he's been knocking repeatedly in pretty much every sphere of our lives. And it's that hunger and that thirst that we've been talking about the past two weeks. Remember Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. The Lord says to his people, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, uh, the streams of living water, and they've dug for themselves cisterns that do not hold water. Remember those ginormous pools dug out of limestone, dug out of rock that take months and months, if not years, to build. And you remember the scarcity we talked about. Every time you take a cup of water out of that, water level goes down, and you're more worried. Got to go replace that. I'm living on this water. It's the source of my life. It's the source of our security. So it's holding everything together. So we live these lives of kind of anxious toil, wake up every day, dig, 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 dig in the rock to kind of build this pool that's going to hold what I need to be okay, to be comfortable, to be in control, to feel good. But as I see those things leaking out of the bottom, I'm always anxious. I'm always worried. Where am I going to get the, where am I going to refill it from? That's the heart that says, um, without any thought towards God, without any thought to what history is about or what your life is about or what your life is contributing to, that's the heart that says stuff like, yeah, it just kind of rambles on about all the stuff you're going to go do. It's an orphan mentality. And James is saying something a lot more than this, but let me just point it out. Even at a basic level, James is pointing out the fact that how much control do you and I actually have in our lives? Um, This is already public knowledge, so I'll share these stories. Harrison pointed out up here the fact that he's got a bum knee now from his soccer game. Um, Last week, he didn't. And we were texting. uh, it's, It's demoralizing and it's limiting, and it's inconvenient to have a knee that doesn't work. Two weeks ago at large group, Casey's car was parked outside, and then it got totaled about a week and a half ago and flipped over the other car. It was the other lady's fault, know that. Last week when I was here, uh, between last week and this week, um, my five-year-old has been in the hospital two separate times for breathing issues. The first time, Um, Anna sent me a text with a diagnosis on it and said, read up on this. The doctor's doing tests to see if this is what's behind Noah's breathing issues. What she gave me to Google was, I don't, it was um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It was ruled out, but there was about an hour where I'm sitting on my side porch reimagining my whole future. Do you know what's going to happen to you tomorrow? None of us have a clue. We don't even know if we're going to be in tomorrow, a part of it. And those are just a few minor stories. And, And James says it's good to reflect on our temporariness, memento tempore, memento tempore. You are temporary because you're a part of someone else's story. 
So James is slamming blueprinting how we're going to dig more cisterns, how we're going to build just the biggest cisterns the world has ever seen, how we're going to finally crack the code of how to kind of keep the water level steady so they don't have to keep kind of getting out there to fill up what Augustine called that God-shaped hole or that God, that hunger for God in my heart that we fill up with stuff. Again, James, this is not new to James. I know this is what he's saying because he's been saying this in, across his book. He's saying that hunger, that hunger for kind of life outside of God is what's really underneath our anger, he told us in chapter one and two. It's what's beneath our partiality and our favoritism in chapter two. It's what's beneath our false faith in chapter two. It's what's beneath our careless conversation in chapter three. It's, what, it's what's beneath our bickering and our beef with each other in chapter four. And it's what's beneath our presumptuousness and our godless imagination about tomorrow, about the future, about all the stuff that we're gonna do just assuming that we're permanent, assuming that we're in control of our lives and of tomorrow. So again, James is saying this me-centered, me-first, godless attitude of the heart has got to go. It's beneath so much disorder and dysfunction and distance between us and God. So you and me as standalone characters, does that phrase make more sense now? You and me or any human being as a standalone character just doesn't make sense if history is what God says history is. But here's where it gets good. You and me in humble, limited, supporting background roles caught up in the music of a hundred other instruments and led by a legendary, brilliant conductor who knows how to make music from broken instruments, that's amazing. And that's the potential. That's the potential. Like we said, those little accent and complementary instruments aren't insignificant when they're properly placed, when they're in the right context when they're contributing to something so much better than just themselves. And this is God's mercy and compassion and kindness too, and it reveals his heart that he would see fit to give birth to you and to me and invite us into this symphony and dignify you with a role in it and invite you into nearness with him as he conducts this. That's the beautiful part of this. So there's a question in there of, does the way you're living your life fit inside this story that God is weaving in this symphony that he is conducting of making all things new in Jesus, of restoring you into one who loves your neighbor increasingly knows and loves your God and rests in his love for you? Does your life more or less, is it harmonizing with that? Or are your greatest ambitions and dreams to get out of the symphony to go do your own thing? I think that's one of the questions that's embedded in this. For tonight, we're going to wrap this up in just a second, but for some of you, you might not be artsy or poetic people, and you're like, I'm just really not vibing with this metaphor, the symphony stuff. 
let's get practical. Well, the good news is, is James is very practical. James is very practical. And he even gives us a little bit of a case study here in verse 15. He's, I mean, talk about as practical as you get. He says, instead of out of the overflow of your God, out of the overflow, overflow of a heart that says, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to go do that, I'm going to carry on business and make money in verse 13. He says, instead of that, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this or that. If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now remember what Jesus says, what James says, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So he's not just saying, um, I mean, if you've ever emailed with like a Christian or a pastor, like a mentor person, they might have like something at the end of their email, like Deo Valente, if the Lord wills, or people, you might have heard people say stuff like, I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing. Um, I'm about to say that's not a bad idea, but James is saying something so much more than tack on a sentence as a suffix to all your plans for the future. I'm applying to grad school next year, Lord willing. I don't want God to mess this up because I forgot to say the phrase. He, he's talking about a heart that is content near to the Lord, a heart that is content to yield itself and to submit uh, joyfully in the Lord's orchestra, content to play a supporting role in somebody else's story, in Jesus' story. That kind of a heart produces words like, you know, if the, if the Lord wills. What does he mean by if the Lord wills? Um, I don't think as much, because of the context of this, that he's saying, um, if it's in God's secret plan for your life, I don't know what that secret is, but if it's a part of his secret plan for your life, then I guess it'll happen. I don't think he's saying it in kind of a fatalistic way like that, although there's some truth to that. The way that he's used this word throughout his letter is this. I'll translate it using the way that James has used the word throughout his letter. If it's the Lord's delight, if it brings a smile to Jesus' face, if it pleases my Father, I'll go do this or that. This little brother of Jesus who encountered his resurrected brother and had seen too much at that point and heard too much, he couldn't not believe that all of history is about his, his brother Jesus. That, this James, for him, everything is about yielding and following this gracious Lord Jesus. It's throughout his letter. And it's here too. He says, what you, should, what you and I, what he's inviting you and I to obsess about with tomorrow isn't simply circumstantial decisions. Go to this school, go to that school. Defer a year, apply next year. Live with these people, live with those people. Live in Pineview, live in the connection, live somewhere else. Date this person, don't date this person. He's not so much saying obsess about just those circumstantial decisions but as you think about tomorrow, if the Lord gives tomorrow to you and to me, to obsess yourself with pleasing the Lord and living in a way that brings a smile to his face. That's the spirit of what James is saying here. If it's the Lord's delight, I want to do it. This is a very different way of thinking than just obsessing on the circumstantial stuff, which is probably all of our default. It's definitely mine. Um, but it, 
it's a, it's, a, it's a paradigm shifting way to think about all of those big decisions and big questions that we have about tomorrow. We gotta make plans for tomorrow. We gotta plan out what comes next. But a lot of times we circumvent the question of like, what delights the Lord? What is he, how is he inviting me to navigate through this decision? We skip over that and just get to, Lord, please give me clarity about the decision. But what if like from every second that we've prayed that prayer until clarity one day comes, we've lived like an orphan? Or what if we've prayed like you said in chapter four of uh, you asked but you did not receive because you asked with wrong motives to spend it on your, on, your, on your selfish desires? What if we're praying with the wrong motives? We get so outcome oriented of Lord clarify, give me clarity, give me clarity for tomorrow. Help me figure out what I'm supposed to do tomorrow. But what if what Jesus is more concerned about and wants to meet you in is between you asking him for clarity and the day that he eventually brings it, how you live that period of life? What your posture of heart is like? What your dependence on him is like? When I was an intern here, this sounds morbid. I guess it is morbid. But uh, I would be talking to students as, as they were working out some of the stuff I was working out of like all those hypotheticals. Where am I gonna live? What am I gonna do? Where am I gonna apply? What's the better school? What city should I move to? I would, at the end of our conversations, I would just ask them, I would say, okay, we've had this long conversation. We've thought about all the pros and cons and everything else. Let me ask you this question. Um, and I warned them, I was like, this is gonna be funny and it's gonna be a little bit of a morbid hypothetical, but it, it proves a point. I said, what's gonna happen if you get hit by a bus next week? Because it's like, maybe we're here in November obsessing about what you're gonna do in July. What happens if you get hit by a bus next week and you don't make it out of November? How would that change how you live the next few days? How would that change how you move through the spring? How would that change how you engage this confusing future decision? And I would do that with myself sometimes. And what it, what it immediately did is it brought me back into the present and it released me from obsessing about this future tomorrow thing that I actually didn't have a ton of control over and didn't know it was gonna happen. And it brought me back to now of, well, you know what? If this was my last week here and I never even got to the outcome of the clarity I'm praying for, I would wanna live like a son of God. I would wanna make I would wanna take advantage of the access that he has given me as my father with his little son. I would wanna pray like I believe he loves me. I would want to pray for peace in my heart. I would want to demonstrate to my friends, I am a little bit nervous about the future. I don't know what I should do in this situation. But the Lord has me. I don't know what I need to do in the future, but I know who's going to be, with, be there with me, whether I'm still confused or whether I get clarity. That's what I would want to obsess on in that week. It's a change of perspective that James is inviting you and I into as well. A mentality where Jesus' story, where his nearness, where his presence, where his grace to you, not just past grace, but his present grace to you is front and center. I just wanna read you just a portion as the very last words um, tonight from Psalm 139. This is an example of a man whose thoughts, not just about the past, not just about the present, but also about the future, were saturated with his good God. 
with his kind and near Father. So Psalm 139, I'll read the first 10 verses. We'll pray, we'll be done. O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. Father, you know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say, even before I say it, Lord. You go before me. You follow me, too. You put your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me to take in. It's too great for me to understand, to wrap my head around. I couldn't escape from your spirit if I wanted to. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, there you are. If I go down to the grave, there you are too. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. That sounds like a man who knows his God is for him, knows his God loves him, and is content to be temporary, is content to be a tiny little player in somebody else's beautiful story that he's been invited into. Jesus is your access to that story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, let us hear the music of what you are doing. Let us see the beauty of who you are. Uh, for my friends who hear this and hear your word through your little brother in James chapter four and five, if they feel like they're just noise, the obsessions about tomorrow, next month, next summer, next year, post-grad life is all just about how can I just get off on my own, do my own thing. If you don't factor anywhere in their thoughts about the future, Lord, if your kindness and your nearness doesn't matter, I pray that you would give them the grace, give them ears to hear the noise of their life and the music of yours, that you would send your Holy Spirit to make them alive and that you would draw them to yourself. And I pray for the rest of us, Lord, that you would give us joy and contentment to be creatures, temporary, limited, small, but caught up in something great. I pray this in your name.